Thanks for coming to church today. We will be talking at church today about the birth of the church. And uh, maybe you've wondered, you know, where does this idea of the church come from? And when did it really get its start in the Bible? And it wasn't exactly a church when it was Jesus and the 12 disciples. It was more of a community. So when did the church uh, begin? We'll talk about that a little bit here today. But part of my job as a pastor is kind of to... Uh, learn about current trends, to read and to uh, study about current trends. And one of the current trends is many Americans are disenchanted with the church. Did you know that? Many are. And in fact, there's almost a cottage industry of books around this theme of people really liking Jesus, but not really liking the church. Maybe you've heard. There's one book by a pastor out in California that's titled as such, They Like Jesus But Not the Church, speaking particularly of young people, of millennials coming up. There's another one called You Lost Me, Why Young People Are Leaving the Church and What We Can Do About It. And there's another one, you see a guy kind of lounging back on a pew, Why Men Hate Going to Church. So grateful for the men in this room, thank you for not hating the church. We have great men in this room and wonderful, wonderful men's ministries that are making a difference. So I don't really think that's our particular issue here. But I do know no matter the church, no matter the community that you're in, there is unfortunately a bit of an exodus happening when young people graduate from high school. Unfortunately, oftentimes they seem to graduate from the church, as that saying goes. And then oftentimes later on people will leave the church because they feel like it's failed them in some way. It was graceless to me. I felt judged there. They weren't able to deal with my difficult questions. I knew some hypocrites there. Yeah. Yes, to all of that. But even so, I want you to know that if you're in that spot today and maybe by, by chance you, you just decide to give this, this place another try. We are all in process here and we are trying in this room to run after Jesus, not after some institution. And we are in process, which means we all have all kinds of faults and we're going to miss the mark at times for sure. But if you've been in that place that you've been away from the church for some time, you're choosing to give it another try, even though you've had some scars at the hands of the church, I just want to say thank you for giving it another try. And I want to commend you for your courage in coming into this room and saying, I'm going to give it another try because I realize I'm a spiritual being that is in need of spiritual connection and perhaps the church would have some of that for me. Well, why is the church sometimes so messy? I think I heard people whisper, because it's made of people, like me, and like you. And last time I checked, I'm messy, and I guess that you probably are too. I could be wrong, but I doubt it. We're all messy, and yet Jesus invites us into his plan A for the world, and the church is intended to be God's plan A for transformation in individual families, in communities, and across the world. His chosen instrument for extending his love to other people. 
Jesus knew that his church would be messy. He's smart. He's really smart. He has foreknowledge. He knew that the church would be messy. And yet, even so, he loved and he died for the church. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27 says this, For Christ loved the church, and he gave himself up for the church to present her to himself as a glorious, radiant, beautiful church in spite of all of her scars. And Jesus said this, I will build the church And not even the gates of evil, not even the gates of Hades, nothing will be able to overcome it. Nothing. I will build my church through ordinary, messy people in process like you and me, and nothing will be able to stop it. That's his promise. Even as he knew that it would be made up of weary travelers like you and me. So today we are in God's story, our story, and in the large meta-narrative of what God did throughout the Bible, he launches his church starting in the book of John, about pages, chapters 13 through 16. He's preparing the disciples for the launch of the church, and then moving into the book of Acts is when it really begins. So we're going to look at a couple different passages today. First, in John uh, 16, if you want to turn there with me. Uh, John 16, you also see these up on the screen, but in John 13 through 16, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure from this earth and for the development of the church and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we go into the book of Acts, and the book of Acts where we'll spend most of our time today is really the launch of the church. It's called the Acts of the Apostles, when the apostles are launching the church. It's also sometimes called the Acts of the Spirit. Because it's a work of the Holy Spirit in beginning the church such that it would bring transformation to the world. The book of Acts was written by a physician by the name of Luke. And Luke is a tested and true historian as he's also a great physician. And he wrote the Gospel of Luke, one of the four little biographies of Jesus. And then he also wrote this book of the Acts of the Apostles. And in the book of Acts, we'll see this truth come through again and again. If you were to read through the book of Acts though, this week, here's my big idea. God's Spirit is present in His church. You see this again and again in the book of Acts. God's Spirit is present in His church, bonding us together in community and fueling us for a great cause. I would say the greatest of all causes Doing these two things, bonding us together in community, allowing us to stick together in spite of all of our differences, and then fueling us for the cause of Christ throughout the world. So once again, Jesus is preparing his disciples in John 16 for his departure from this earth, and uh, it's, it's four long chapters of Uh, teaching and explanation from Jesus to his disciples before he's crucified in John 13 through 16, and then he prays for his disciples in John 17. But in John 16 specifically, he's telling his disciples, it's actually good for you that I go. And they're shocked by this. They've heard him say on a number of occasions that he's going to be crucified, but that they never really believe it, and never really settles in that he's leaving. And they're starting to get frustrated as they start to understand that he actually is going to be turned over to the authorities and he's going to die and he's going to be gone from them. And as we might do, so they did. They said, what about me? If you're leaving, 
we've kind of put our trust in you for the past three and a half years, so what about me? And so in this particular instance, he comforts them that though I am going away, it'll actually be for your benefit because now my spirit will come to you who believe in me, and this is still true for us today, his spirit comes and dwells in us who believe in him, and he will be with you always and everywhere you go. John 16, starting at verse 5. Now I'm going to him, to the Father who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things to you. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good, it's for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate, or your translation might say the counselor or the comforter, that's the Holy Spirit, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you to dwell in you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because people do not believe in me and the Holy Spirit will convict us. He convicts us to believe in him. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer and about judgment because the prince of this world that is the enemy to our souls now stands condemned by the cross of Jesus. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear right now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. So you see there that Jesus is comforting his disciples, isn't he? He's reminding them that the Holy Spirit will be with you, even though I will not be with you physically. My spirit will be with you and in you, comforting you, convicting you, guiding you in all truth. And after he promises this, Jesus is then viciously crucified. He dies. He's risen from the grave. Uh, Then he spends time with his disciples and many others, believers and skeptics alike, for a number of weeks before he ascends into heaven. And the next scene that we have here is in Acts chapter 1, if you want to turn over about 10 pages to it, Acts chapter 1, the disciples are gathered together once again, and now they're living in fear because the authorities are coming after them just like they came after Jesus, and Jesus is with them during his resurrection, right before he's ascending to heaven, and he comforts them once more with the same basic message that as I ascend to heaven, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. And you see it here in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. As God will be with you, he will fuel you for this great cause. It's this ongoing message that God is with you and he's in us together as a community, bonding us together in a community, and at the same time he is fueling us for this great cause that we will be his witnesses, that we will be instruments of his love and his truth wherever we would go, Monday to Sunday. Now there's this common misconception in some parts of American Christianity that all I really need is my God and my Bible. And if I have that, that's enough. 
And I understand, and to some degree that's even true, that that's all you really need, because if you have your Bible, then you have the words of God that are objectively true for your life every day. And you have God, you, you have God with you, and, and the truth is that if you receive Christ, you are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells in you. So in one sense, that is true, that's all you need. But in another sense, it kind of misses it, because Acts 1.8, the way we read it here is it says, you will receive, and in English it's the second person singular, you. At least that's the way we read it, okay? There's no use in English, it's just you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so we as independent Americans might be tempted to read this and say, oh great, I get the Holy Spirit, lucky me. That's not what it's about though. Because in the original language that this was written, you can be second person singular or second person plural. And in this case, you, in the original Greek language, is second person plural. And there's a different spelling to it. And so the way you would actually read is like this. To speak a little bit of Texan. Y'all. Got any Texans in the room? I will do my very best. Okay, I, I'm sorry, Aaron. It's a lousy impersonation. Our newest pastor, Aaron Ferguson from, from Texas. He's going to make fun of me tomorrow. But y'all will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on y'all. And then y'all be my witnesses in Kearney, and in Nebraska, and in Chicago, and in Columbia, in Magange, and even to the ends of the earth because the Holy Spirit will be in y'all, okay? It's not about us as individuals here. It's speaking about the Holy Spirit bonding us together, all of us in community, and then the result is we can do far more together than we could ever do individually. That's what Jesus has in mind when he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit to y'all. Okay? Thanks, Texans in the audience, for a little bit of help. It's the Spirit of God that bonds us together, that sticks us together. He is the counselor that prompts us together as a community to love when it's not that easy to love. He's the one that sometimes I'll, I'll see you during the week and we'll have a connection over at a grocery store or whatever. And it's like I finish up that connection with you at a grocery store. Man, the Spirit of God in them touched the Spirit of God in me. And how sweet was that to connect with them for just a couple moments? Because the same Spirit of God that lives in you also lives in me and bonds us together in community when we see each other. Or you think about the power of the Holy Spirit to collectively convict us. It wasn't that long ago, this church went through a very painful time, and in 2001, went through a collective time of repentance. As they collectively realized we've missed the mark in certain ways, and we're sorry, and the Holy Spirit led the church to collectively repent, and brought about a new sense of revival as the church was operating together in a unique, binded together community as one for the cause of Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. It's more than me, my God, and my Bible. It's us together for the cause of Christ. And every metaphor that we're given in the New Testament speaks to this. What I want to do here for the remainder of our time is just give you the four prime metaphors that are given to us in the New Testament to describe the church, to describe us. 
The first one is this. The church is a fellowship. The church is a fellowship. And so we prioritize within a fellowship unity and harmony. We extend the hand of friendship and warmth and greeting to one another. We may not be best friends, but we like each other. And we choose to work things out when sometimes things get funky. And we choose to never gossip about one another. I gotta tell you, if someone ever brings me a gossipful word about someone else in this church, here's my response. Have you told them? Because we're a fellowship. Because we love each other. Because we're a community. Because we have extended the hand of friendship to each other. There's a woman who's just recently started attending this church over the past few weeks. And I don't know all of her background, but she wrote me a note to tell me about her experience. She said, Adrian, I want to tell you about my impression of Carney E. Free. To which I'm like, uh-oh, hold on. I've attended the past three Sundays and am extremely impressed with what I have encountered. From the moment I walk in the door, I've had multiple people greet me, strike up a conversation, and generally make me feel very welcome. I look forward to attending on a regular basis. This is a vibrant church and one that Carney is so fortunate to have. I love hearing that. And I I get to hear that on a regular basis. Every once in a while, there may be a negative word, but I don't hear it too often because we are a fellowship that looks out for the best of one another. Second, the church is a flock. We are a flock underneath the care of the great shepherd. And we have one great shepherd, and it ain't me. And it's not our elder board. It's not any other pastor. It's Jesus. Jesus the shepherd over this flock. And we all collectively are following him. And we believe that we all collectively need to be equipped, including me. Every one of us are needy for the same thing. And in the same way that he would leave the 99 righteous people to go after the one lost person because you value, you're valued that much to him. In the same way that he loves you that much, that if you were to wander, so also we as a flock, we would go after the one person who has wandered far from this flock because we love you that much. We pray that you never wander, but if you ever do, we're going to come after you because we love you. You hear what I'm saying? We're a flock underneath the same shepherd, and he guides us as his sheep. We are a body. We're a body as well. This is another metaphor that you see frequently in the Bible to describe the church. There's a great passage up on the screen from 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27, and it says this. If one part of the body suffers, every part of the body suffers with it. Wow. Mm. What, what if that were so? What if that was really the case? You ever have the experience of something wrong with your pinky and it's the only thing you can think of? Like every other part of your body is being affected by it? That's what he has in mind here. That if my brother or my sister in this room, my brother or my sister who may be watching online today is suffering, I'm willing to suffer with them. I'm willing to empathize with what they're going through. 
I'm willing to listen, I'm willing to pray, I'm willing to be interrupted from my routine because we're part of the same body. Let's read this out loud together from 1 Corinthians 12, 26 and 27. Would you join me? If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of Each of you is a part of it, which is why in spite of all of its foibles, I still love the church. It's done all kinds of bad things across the centuries because it's made of people, but I'm I'm not at all, I'm not at all ashamed to be identified with the church. I'm not at all ashamed to be identified with the church universally because it's God's instrument for the world. And I'm not at all ashamed to be identified with this church and this community because this is one of God's greatest instruments for this world that we are living in. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the church because God continues to use it to bring about transformation in the lives of ordinary people, including me. I can't tell you how much the church has transformed my life. When I was a wary traveler and I didn't know where to go, I got into a great church and it changed my life. And each and every church that I've been in has been a healthy church. I know I might be a minority there, but this is still what God desires, that he would take ordinary folks like you and me who are lumpy mounds of clay and he would be the good potter that would transform us collectively in community and the result would be this glorious vase for his honor, that we'd be vessels of noble use for his honor, that that God would do far more through us together than he could ever do through us individually. I gotta tell you, I, I have many reasons that I go back to on a regular basis to believe that Jesus is Lord and that Christianity is true. There are so many great reasons to believe it. But there's no reason greater to me than the demonstration of a transformed life and a demonstration of a transformed community, and a community through which love and truth is being extended to the world. And that's what we're about here. Our mission is building a transformational community that's growing in love with Christ and all people. And I pray that you find that here, whether you're suffering today or rejoicing today, that someone would suffer or rejoice with you. We are the body of Christ and he is the head. And finally, we're a family. And as a family, we, we don't always get along, but we choose to love one another as part of the family. You got any crazy uncles in your family? I still love my crazy uncle. Right? We all got them. We're part of a family here. We're a spiritual family. And Jesus actually has the gall to say that we're going to be family forever. So, like, get used to liking each other. Get used to loving each other. Get used to dealing with the things that you don't like about one another. We keep no record of wrongs. Just out of curiosity, do you have any... Uh, all family projects in your house. Raise your hand if you, if you do those. All family projects. Where everyone is expected to chip in, even if you have preschoolers. Anyone else? Okay, me and one other in the audience. Thank you. Okay, all right. A few of us have all family projects. I see you in the back there, Boykin. 
I see you, Denny. Okay. All right, we all got all family projects. And I don't know about your family. In our family, different people have different resources. Different people are able to chip in a whole lot or not very much. For some people, it takes a lot more to explain how to do the family project than it does for them to do anything for the family project. But there's something about doing it all together, isn't there? And we are in such a family project right now. In this from here to there, capital opportunity. We are building a church in Columbia. We are building a prayer room right through those doors. We're retiring debt on this beautiful building that many in this room paid for seven, eight years ago, and the rest of us are just beneficiaries of, me included, and we are reforming a youth room back there for both our youth ministry and our bilingual ministry and for weddings and funerals, and this is one of those rare all-in family projects where we all put our hands on deck and say, how can I be a part? And as your pastor... Can I gently ask you to be a part of this family project? Yes. Yes, I can. Will you listen? Will you respond? Yes. You. <laughs> okay, we're, we're all in. And it's going to be different ways for all of us. There might be families in this church that have the means to give $100,000. And God might be leading you to that. Okay. David said in the Old Testament, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Mm. I'm not going to give something to the Lord that costs me nothing. I'm going to sacrifice for the Lord and what he wants to do through my church. Now for others in this room, it might be hundreds of dollars. I don't know. There'll be different sized gifts, just as there's different resources in any, in any family, because we are different parts of the body, but all to the same king, for his glory and every prayer and every contribution matters a great deal for the glory of God and for the advancement of this church. I pray that you would be in on this project with us for God's honor, for God's glory as we seek to accomplish these different aspects of this project. God's spirit is present in this church, bonding our community together, fueling us for the cause of Christ. I just got to tell you, I am so blessed to be lead pastor of this church where I get to see on a regular basis this alignment. And right now, as we're in this project, we have this alignment right now that is really miraculous. It's been over two years of prayer amongst our elder board, our strategic planning team, our staff, and our, in, our administration and finance team. And we're all aligned that these are the things that need to be done for our church to continue to move forward into our future and for us to be fiscally responsible and to get out of debt completely. Turn with me to one final passage here, Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 36 through uh, 47. And in Acts chapter 2, you have the Apostle Peter gathered together with a whole bunch of people at a place called Pentecost. And Pentecost was this Jewish holiday in which Jews came from all over the world to worship God 50 days after the Passover. And Peter takes advantage of this opportunity to preach to Jews from all over the world about Jesus. People from all different tribes and all different tongues. And many of them come to know Jesus in this moment as he's teaching them the gospel of Jesus Christ that we talked about last week. That gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ 
by which sinners like us are pardoned and welcomed into the church, welcomed into God's family, forgiven forevermore. And so he's given this message, and a ton of people respond, and here's what happens in verse 36. He says, therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. My goodness, you think I preach hard. He turns to people, he says, you crucified him. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, just do this. Just repent. Repent, and then go be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord your God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Mm, wouldn't you want to be there for that? Baptism service featuring 3,000 new conversions. Holy smokes. Now, I think, I believe, though. What Peter is saying here is you repent, and as you repent, you are acknowledging Jesus as your king and your savior, and then the Holy Spirit comes in you, and the very next thing that you would do after that is practice what is called believer's baptism, that you believe, and then after you believe, after you're old enough to understand what it means to believe, you are baptized in order to identify with the one who identifies with you, that your main identity marker would be, I am a child of God. Now, I don't know about you when you were baptized, if you were baptized. I was baptized as a baby. I don't remember it. I don't know what I was doing. So I was baptized again as an adult, as a believer, after I knew what I was doing. And maybe you're in that crowd, and you'd be welcome to be baptized here sometime. And next Sunday, as you've heard already, we're going to have a baptism service in which we celebrate God's life change in people in this room. And it will be a celebration Sunday. It will be awesome to celebrate baptism together. And this is the response. 3,000 are baptized that day. They go from about a ragtag group of maybe 150 people to 3,150 people. And this is the next thing that we see. They are now gathered together as a church, fueled by the Holy Spirit for community and for the cause of Christ. Verse 42, they devoted themselves. This is what they did. This is the first description of the church. They devoted themselves to these things. The apostles' teaching, that's what we call truth and gospel. The apostles' teaching, the truth of the gospel. And to the fellowship, that's what we call community. Community is the context for life change. No Lone Ranger Christians. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. They loved eating together like we do too. And to prayer. They enveloped it all in prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. That's called mission. They're not living for themselves. They're living for the gospel. They're living for Christ. And they're seeking to help other people. They see that some people have need and they give to it. Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, and listen to this, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Wow. 
a church of over 3,000 people living like that. Oh, there's a need. I have a little extra. I can give to that. In the words of Dave Ramsey, they lived like no one else so they could give like no one else. These are people who understood that wherever you find greed, there you will find misery. And these are people who understood that wherever you find generosity, right there you will find joy. Wherever you find generosity, there you will find joy. Because they lived this way, they loved each other this way, they loved the broader community this way, they had a backbone of steel devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were covered in prayer, people liked what they saw. The message paraphrase of verse 47 from Eugene Peterson puts a ribbon on it like this. It says, people in general liked what they saw. Isn't that good? People in general liked what they saw. And the Lord added daily to their number those who are being saved. I, I think that's probably what we should expect in 2018. We won't enjoy the favor of all the people today. Our culture has changed too much. And there's lots of people that unfortunately are very, very opposed to the message of the church. But if we live like that early church, people in general will say, mm-mm, that's good. Let me be part of that. Give me some of that. I want to be a part of a flock. I want to be a part of a fellowship. I want to be a part of a community. I want to be a part of a family. I want to be part of a body like that. May it be till Christ returns. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I, I just want to thank you for the gift of the church. I am so thankful that I don't have to go this life alone. I'm so thankful, Lord, that I have brothers and sisters in this room who are my brothers and sisters for all of this life and actually for all of eternity. A shocking idea, well, when you think of it, but you, Lord Jesus, had this idea to put us in a family. You had this idea that I would be my brother's keeper in this room. I would be my sister's keeper in this room. And that we're not meant to make it through this world as Christians by ourselves, but we need one another. So Father, I pray for anyone in this room today who is isolated, that you would bring them out of that place and into community, and they would know that no matter what they have brought in here, no matter how similar or different they might be, we'll find a place of community for you. Pray, Lord, for those who have chosen to be independent. I pray, God, that by your Spirit you might even convict. You might challenge them. The independence is okay when everything is going well. But the moment the challenges of life come our way, and Lord knows they are, to be independent will destroy us. We need each other. We need each other. So Father, I pray for brothers and sisters in this room who are living in isolation or independence that you would bring us out of that and bring us into a sense of proper dependence on one another, into this family where we have a few others who know
our stories and still love us. This is your church. We thank you, Lord, that we get to be a part of it. We pray that as people outside of this community see this church, they would say, I like Jesus. And I like what they're doing in that church too. All for the glory of God. We pray that it would be so until Christ returns. And God's people say, Amen.